Today on Blue 58, the Packers are in Cincinnati preparing for their first preseason game. They're also making moves, including one that could dramatically shape the defense early in the season. Rashawn Gary is back from the physically unable to perform list. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. Got a lot to cover today. Roster moves for the Packers and a few more questions from listeners and readers that I want to make sure that we've got time to get to. There were so many good questions in the last episode that we didn't have a chance to get to them all, so we're going to get to a couple of more today. But first, the Packers are making some moves. After playing in the family night scrimmage, Danny Etling is a Packer no more. Evidently, they only needed four quarterbacks to get training camp off the ground, which makes sense. Once you got it up and running, the Packers are basically in their regular season mode. There are only five more training camp practices that are actually open to the public because the Packers are in Cincinnati, of course, this week. As a side note, I always forget how short this whole thing actually is. They get through stuff really, really quickly, and it's not going to be long before the Packers are basically closing camp and starting to look ahead to week one, which is getting closer and closer every single day. As a side note to that side note, if you're thinking of going to training camp, time is of the essence, of course, but next week is really the week. There are public practices, at least according to the current schedule, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Monday, the Packers have normal practice. Wednesday, they've got a joint practice with the Patriots. And Thursday, also a joint practice with the Patriots. Patriots, excuse me. So it should be three pretty good practices to watch. And if you are traveling to the area to go to one or all of those practices, Tuesday seems like it'd be a really great day to hang out in Green Bay or take a trip up to Door County or something like that. Whole area is awesome this time of year. So if you are from out of state heading to Wisconsin and you need that little push, consider this it. Get up there, go to practice, have a good time in the Green Bay area. Good stuff to do up there and plenty of good food to eat too. The real news here though, as the Packers make some roster news, roster moves, is that Rashawn Gary is off the physically unable to perform list. He was activated off the pup list on the 275th day after his ACL tear. According to our conversation with Luke Lines earlier this offseason, that would mean he's at about 90% strength from where he was pre-injury. According to normal guidelines, at least, and I don't think we have any reason to disbelieve that, he'd have to be at least 90%, you'd think, given how conservative the Packers medical staff tends to be. So 90% or above for Rashawn Gary. Great news all around, and it shows why not to bet against Rashawn Gary. I thought it was going to be into the regular season. I thought it was going to be potentially after the bye. And a correction, if we haven't made it already, the physically unable to perform list only carries you four weeks into the regular season now, not six weeks as it was into the past. Anyway, Rashawn Gary-wise, I'm not sure I'm going to be making adjustments to my statistical predictions for him yet. If it looks like he's going to play in week one, we'll change some things around. But in any case, huge news. Huge news for the Packers for obvious reasons. Huge news for Rashawn Gary, obviously. The next big thing is going to be his contract, which I think probably will happen here in the in the relatively near future, before the end of 2023, whatever year we're in now, to be sure. I mean, by the end of the calendar year, at the very least. I would think probably by October or so at the latest. But the Packers are going to want to get a deal done. They're not going to want to go into the, the regular season too far without getting things locked up, and certainly I wouldn't think into the offseason where you run the risk of having to franchise franchise tag him and all of the machinations that go on with that, plus upsetting the player 
everything that goes on with that, I think they're probably going to want to get it done sooner than later. And don't forget, Rashawn Gary, unless something has changed and I hadn't noticed it, is still acting as an as his own agent. So add that wrench to the mix here if you are Russ Ball and the Packers trying to square away a contract. But that's going to be the next thing on the horizon for him. Gary coming back, huge news for Preston Smith. I don't think it's a knock to say that he's always been better kind of as a sidekick. That's some people's role is to be a supporting player. And that has always been a really good role for Preston Smith to be in. His pressure numbers really tailed off last year after Rashawn Gary was hurt. Having Gary back on the field at some point sooner than later has to only be a good thing for Preston Smith. I also think this is huge news for Lucas Van Ness. By all accounts, once he's really gotten into training camp, they put the pads on, turn him loose a little bit. Things have started to come along pretty quickly for him. However, having Gary out there gives him more time in that apprenticeship sort of role. You can really pick your spots to deploy Lucas Van Ness, allow him to figure out what it takes for him to be successful at the NFL level, which can only be a good thing for your defense. It worked for Rashawn Gary, although I still wish they would have brought him along a little bit quicker his rookie year. I think it'll probably work for Lucas Van Ness, who almost certainly is going to have more playing time than Rashawn Gary did as a rookie. Final roster move here this week is the Packers signed running back Nate McCrary. I'm going to just read verbatim what the Packers wrote about him in their release because it has been a journey in his relatively short NFL career. Uh, And now quoting from the release, McCrary, a first-year player out of Saginaw Valley State, go Jeff Janis's, originally signed with the Baltimore Ravens as an undrafted free agent in 2021. He spent his rookie season on the Denver Broncos active roster and on the Baltimore Ravens practice squad. He was elevated to the active roster for one game by the Ravens in 2021 as a COVID replacement, remember those, and recorded a carry. He was released by Baltimore during the 2022 training camp and spent part of last season on the Carolina Panthers practice squad. McQuarrie spent the last offseason and the early part of the training of training camp with the Cleveland Browns. He will wear number 46 for the Packers. You got all that? Ravens, Broncos, in a game for the Ravens, Panthers, Browns, still technically his first year in the NFL, though not a rookie because he has yet to get to the playing time accumulation thresholds to start getting some of those veteran benefits, or at least on the path toward those veteran benefits. He's had a lot of things in his still relatively young playing career. Overall takeaways here, first and foremost, McCrary seems like a pretty good athlete, 942 relative athletic score, though he did test at a heavier weight than he is listed at now on his at his pro day or whatever uh, event generated the numbers for his RAS score. He weighed in at 220 pounds and ran a 452 40-yard dash at 220, which, if you remember back to our draft preview process, would give him a speed score of 105.5, basically just a a metric for moving your mass there. We like the mass movers. Bigger backs that can run fast in a straight line are almost always good, and a speed score over 100 is a good thing. If he ran that same 40 time at the weight he's at now, he'd be down to a 102 speed score, still pretty good, not quite as good. But just as a, a thought experiment here, If he was able to drop that weight and get a little bit faster, there's a chance his speed score could have gone up still. Dropping that seven pounds, if that allowed him to drop his 40 times by, say, five hundredths of a second down to 447, he'd go all the way up to a speed score of 106.2. Not too shabby. In any case, it seems like the overall broad stroke assessment that he can move his mass pretty well is a good one. Secondly, Packers beat up at running back. Lou Nichols hasn't practiced after an injury prior to family night, which is a concern for his prospects of making the roster. 
And given that Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon probably aren't going to play all that much, they need another running back just to have practice and to you know, get things done in their preseason games. Finally, third-string running back seems like very much an open competition. Tyler Goodson, I would say right now, seems to be the favorite. Patrick Taylor obviously can't be counted out considering how he has survived to this point in his NFL career. And Lou, Mickle- Lou Nichols excuse me, may yet have a say when he gets to play in games. Not practicing in one thing, once you start not being able to participate in preseason games, that gets to be a little bit concerning. And now they've got McCrary. Four guys competing essentially for one spot. That is always interesting. Plus, when you're going to inevitably keep one or two running backs on the practice squad, it becomes all the more important to make the most when you've got those opportunities. And McCrary has one now. Final news item here. The Packers have released their first official, in heavy, heavy air quotes, depth chart. Yes, it is official. Does it mean anything? I don't really know. I don't think so, but there are a couple takeaways that I think that we can pull from it. First on the offensive line, Zach Tom is listed as the starter at right tackle because Yash Nyman is listed as the top backup as at left tackle, but not at right tackle, which makes me wonder a little bit if we're going to see something here this season that we saw last year. Essentially, last year guys were not able to get into roles consistently because the Packers were sitting around waiting for David Bakhtiari to sort things out. The Packers needed to have John Runyon at left guard and Royce Newman at right guard because Elton Jenkins was playing right tackle because Yash Nyman had to play left tackle because they weren't sure how consistently David Bakhtiari was going to play. You remember when they were alternating drives early in the season? You can't really put Yash Nyman at right tackle then, because you're not sure where David Bakhtiari is going to be on a series-by-series basis, so that shakes everything else up. Once David Bakhtiari was in the lineup consistently, you could start sorting things out on the right side. Elton Jenkins could move back towards the left side, and John Runyon could go to right guard. Everything sort of settles out. I wonder if there's a chance we'll have a mini version of that this year. Because it seems like the Packers, dating back to early this offseason, would very much like for there to be a competition at center. I don't know if you can have that competition at center if Yash Nyman can't settle in at right tackle because he has to be the top backup at left tackle. Because if he can't settle in at right tackle, then Zach Tom is going to be at the right side, which means that Josh Myers is settled in at center. But since the Packers want to have Tom at center, he can't figure things out fully at right tackle, which means that Yash Nyman has to play right tackle in addition to being the top backup on the left side. And you see how it can get kind of spiraling. And suddenly you've got moving pieces everywhere just because they can't figure out what's going on with David Bakhtiari for sure. Now, this is just theorizing based on the depth chart, but we've seen some of this in practice too. David Bakhtiari has missed practices where he's been scheduled to go which means other people can't play where they've been practicing to play. They have to go fill in for David Bakhtiari. And at a point, I don't think we're there yet, you have to start to ask yourself how much of this juice is worth the squeeze. How much are you willing to go through to have David Bakhtiari on your left side? The answer still, I think, is quite a bit, because when he's been on the field, he's been very, very good. He was very, very good when he was on the field last year. We've run the numbers, we've talked about it. He's still a very good left tackle. 
But how many hoops are you willing to jump through with the rest of your offensive line as you try to figure out these other spots that give you those best five while David Bakhtiari misses practices and all of the permutations of that? I mean, the simple fact alone that maybe Yash Nyman is not getting as many reps on the right side as he could because Bakhtiari is out, so he has to play on the left side, is messing with the Packers' offensive line plans. So how do you handle that? I don't know. And this is a lot to go on just based on an unofficial official depth chart, but I think there is another version of what we saw last year looming again in 2023. Cornerback, something interesting happened there. Carrington Valentine, seventh-round rookie this year, is among the second-teamers. He seems to have had a really great camp. He seems both on the depth chart and based on anecdotal evidence to be well ahead of guys like Shamar Jean-Charles. I understand that he plays a different position, uh, Jean-Charles being more of a nickelback type player, but Valentine being well ahead of guys like that seems to bode pretty well for his roster prospects and even being some sort of a factor in the Packers secondary this year. At fullback, Josiah DeGuara is listed here and not among the tight ends at all. Packers are back in the fullback business. We've talked about Henry Pearson a little bit. DeGuara, apparently officially a fullback, though not officially a fullback on the Packers roster. On the depth chart, though, playing fullback this season. Wide receiver, the depth chart shows you the Packers' top six right now is Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs, Samari Ture, Dontavian Wicks, Bo Melton, and Jaden Reed. If you told me those were the six they took to the 53, I think I'd be pretty okay with that. You've got, obviously, the the big two guys from last year, Watson and Dobbs. Uh, the next most obvious guy after them, Samori Ture, settling in for his spot. Then you've got, essentially, three rookies, but really Melton is a second-year guy. But Wicks and, and Reed, the rookies we would expect to make the biggest splash right off the bat. And then a prospect sort of in the mold of Jaden Reed and Bo Melton, who seems to be having a pretty good camp, too. That seems like a pretty good group of six, if you ask me. And you could probably sneak another couple guys to the practice squad in the mold of a Malik Heath or a Grant DeBose there too. It seems like they're in pretty good shape at wide receiver, at least in terms of the prospects and where they land on their depth chart. As a final takeaway, do not stress about this depth chart at all. I realize I had a five-minute aside there on what it could portend for the future of the Packers' offensive line as it pertains to David Bakhtiari. It's not that big of a deal. The depth chart is probably an entirely separate issue from, you know, where David Bakhtari or whoever falls on it. But that a guy is just in a certain spot right now really doesn't matter all that much. It is still barely August. We haven't had our first preseason game yet. Try not to stress about it. Now to your questions. Got a couple interesting ones here uh, to close things out for today that we didn't get a chance to get to in the last episode. Uh, But right off the bat, Papa Rooster in our Discord server asks a, a really interesting one about the coaching staff. He says, every offseason, there are generally a small rotation of positional coaching changes. Which one have been notable for you historically? There are three or four new names or promotions on the offensive side. Does that coincide well with the new era of the Packers offense, or does the lack of coaching continuity introduce some uncertainty? Well, coaches that aren't a head coach or offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator, which coaches, excuse me, do you think will have the most opportunity for impact this season? Jason Vrabel was promoted from passing game coordinator to wide receiver coach, Talk about an opportunity to really stamp your name on the legacy of some players with a lot to prove and a lot of upside. To answer the last part there, I think Vrabel is a really good pick. But overall, historically notable stuff, I think anything involving the Packers' offensive coordinator is going to be of interest to me just because of how they have handled that position historically. The Packers, 
for almost 20 years now. Well, no, even longer than that. Mike Sherman, uh, Mike McCarthy, Matt LaFleur, they've all been offensive-minded head coaches. And they all have had significant or entire control over the play-calling process. So really, offensive coordinator has been a much more, not quite symbolic role, but a much different role than it is on on teams where either the head coach doesn't call plays or the head coach is focused on the defense. Under Mike McCarthy, the position was essentially symbolic. He treated it a lot like a chief of staff. It was the guy who was in charge of making sure you know all the trains ran on time, that everybody was was lined up and everybody was doing what they were supposed to do. It was, it was like a, an executive sort of position. Under Matt LaFleur, it's been a little bit different. First, you had Nathaniel Hackett, who had significant control or influence on the way the Packers handled the red zone, which I think was a good role for him because he, for all of his you know personal foibles and uh, quirks and, and the fact that he was not very good as a head coach in his first opportunity to do that, he was good in small sample sizes at doing some some really good things with the Packers' red zone stuff. Adam Stenovich as offensive coordinator has basically been an extension of Adam Stenovich, the offensive line coach. What he does is less important to me, though, than, than how this is handled between the two coaches. Again, largely symbolic, uh, more of an executive position under Mike McCarthy, Tom Clemens, Edgar Bannett in that role. Under Matt LaFleur, it seems to have a significant impact on the offense and how the offense overall is structured. Interesting difference. I'm not sure which approach is necessarily better, but it is interesting that they're different. As far as the new guys on the offensive side and the uncertainty that could play into it, I think the biggest concern I would have there is just operational hiccups. I don't really worry about the continuity of you know philosophy or anything like that. It would bother me or or worry me that things are just going to be different in terms of who has input on things in 2023. 2020, 2019, excuse me, through 2021, there was a lot of stability and they had a good process overall. You got a lot of good impact from a lot of different guys. I think during the 2022 season, it was on the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel podcast, but they were talking about how uh, different guys had impact or, and um, influence on the play calling. It wasn't just that Matt LaFleur would call plays, it's that he would get impact or input and allow different guys to call plays on different situations or within different situations. So LaFleur called a lot of plays between the 20s. Nathaniel Hackett would offer up a menu of plays in the red zone and LaFleur would pick from that. In other situations, in like uh, he would have certain guys game plan for, say, like third and six. Uh, Justin Outen, who was the Packers' tight ends coach and then went to Denver to be Nathaniel Hackett's offensive, uh, offensive coordinator, called plays in some situations like that. Adam Stenovich had some calling responsibilities in situations like that. That all worked really well or seemed to from 2019 through 2021. But in 2022... There were significant changes on the the coaching staff. Uh, Nathaniel Hackett leaves. Luke Getze leaves. Uh, Justin Outen leaves. You see some hiccups that things were just not as smooth for the Packers on offense. And I wonder how different that could have been had those some of those same guys been in place. I think they're still figuring out what the staff looks like after that. And this offseason has played into that a little bit. There have been some changes, though not as extensive as they, as they were last year, and I'm interested to see how that plays out this year. 
In terms of coaches that aren't a coordinator or the head coach that could have the most opportunity for impact this season, in addition to Jason Vrabel, uh, like Papa Rooster said, I think there are three other guys. First, Jerry Montgomery, the Packers defensive line coach and run game coordinator. It's easy to see that the defensive line needs some help, or at least needs to be different from what it was last year. And I think it's time for Jerry Montgomery to, to really show what he can do, if anything. Because I think it's fair to point out that there hasn't been a whole lot of noteworthy defensive line talent developed other than Kenny Clark under his watch. So it's time to develop some guys. You've got uh, Colby Wooden and Carl Brooks, the rookies this year, but also TJ Slayton, Chris Slayton, uh, Devontae Wyatt. He's got a full cast of characters there that he can work with and really put his stamp on. It's time to show what he can do. On top of that, the Packers made some really unusual, uh, questionable, you could say, decisions with their defensive line last year and how they utilized different people, namely just playing guys like Jaron Reed and uh, Dean Lowry over Devontae Wyatt, or maybe not even over Devontae Wyatt, but just going really heavy on those other guys instead of giving guys like Wyatt or TJ Slayton or Chris Slayton or Jack Heflin even a chance to show that they could do something different. Jerry Montgomery could have a big impact on this year's Packers team, and I think it's it's time to really see what he can do. Also on defense, Greg Williams, the passing game coordinator, uh, an external hire to replace Jerry Gray. Packers still have a pretty young secondary, and they've got some guys that are going to slot in around two really good players in Jair Alexander and Rasul Douglas that are going to shape the secondary as well. How all those players come together is going to be largely the domain of Greg Williams, and replacing a guy as highly regarded for whatever success he may have had as Jerry Gray, those are some maybe not big shoes to fill, but important shoes to fill considering how all the players talked about Jerry Gray and his impact on them. Finally, and maybe this is just one of my pet projects here, but Connor Lewis, the assistant quarterback coach, I don't know if this is still true, but last year he was the only coach on the staff who had no playing experience in football above high school. I was not able to verify what he did at the high school level, but everyone else on the staff played either in high, or in college or in the pros at some level. Aaron Rodgers was a big fan of his. He is a certifiably smart guy, was a game operations guy for Matt LaFleur in the past. He has basically grown into his role by helping people process decisions during the game and going from no playing experience above high school to even assistant quarterback coach in the NFL is quite an achievement in and of itself. And getting to assistant quarterback coach puts him pretty well on the path towards a head coaching role someday, which would be really unusual for a guy who didn't play in college or the NFL. But it's been really fascinating to watch him grow through the organization. And I think at the very least, if he can help with decision-making for Jordan Love, that's a big win. Just another guy out there to help Tom Clements, who, who's pretty highly regarded in these parts. We like Tom Clements a lot. And if you're getting input from him, maybe you grow into something yourself someday. So there's a lot on the Packers coaching staff. Tyrannist asks, it seems that Joe Barry did a lot right in his first season, considering we were ninth in points allowed, shut the Seahawks out, had plenty of good games without Jair Alexander and Zadarius Smith, while our defense played phenomenally against the 49ers, even if we lost the divisional round game. What should he aim to repeat for this coming season, and what must he drop? Will dropping the zone and focusing more on man or trusting the playmakers be the main place to start? 
I think that that's it. You really put a bow on it right there. I don't think dropping the zone is necessarily it, but putting his playmakers in a position to make plays is really what what is going to work for Joe Barry if he's going to retain his job as the Packers defensive coordinator. He's got to play the players he has and not the schemes that he has. Dropping the zone is probably not happening, but there are still ways to maximize what guys do well. I think Jair Alexander can succeed in a zone-based scheme, provided he gets opportunities to man up with guys as well. And Rasul Douglas is a, a well-suited suited to his own sort of scheme. You can figure out how to isolate guys when you really need to, I guess is my point. And giving guys like Rasul Douglas and Jair Freedom, Jair Alexander Freedom to do what they do well seems like a pretty good plan. He's also got an opportunity to really maximize some of the skills that players have, particularly, I think, up front. And that's where guys like Kenny Clark moving around a little bit is really where he could differentiate himself and do some really good things as the Packers defensive coordinator, letting Kenny Clark shine, whether it's as a nose tackle or a three-technique defensive tackle or a defensive end, finding ways to use his pass rush ability while getting him support from elsewhere on the defense. That's a a real important coaching point, I think, for Joe Barry this year and really every year that he's been the Packers defensive coordinator. But just putting guys like Kenny Clark and Jair Alexander and Rasul Douglas in positions where they can succeed is a step in the right direction, I think, for Joe Barry. The thing that I think he has to repeat is being willing to make changes. Safety moved around a lot last year, as did the slot, but eventually they landed on guys that they liked quite a bit. Rudy Ford turned out to be pretty solid as a safety. Keyshawn Nixon turned out to be pretty solid as a slot corner, and it took a while, but eventually Barry did tinker with those things and landed on some things that that worked pretty well. So I think the lesson there is he has to be willing to make changes to things that aren't working. That seems like a pretty good lesson for just about every coach out there, but it's a hard one to learn. You come in with an approach, you come in with a mindset of things that you want to do because you believe that it can work. And it's hard to get off those things that you think are going to work, even if they're not working. But being willing to tinker, being willing to change, being willing to throw stuff out and do something completely different, I think is the mark of a good coach. To use like the epitome of that, I think that is why Bill Belichick succeeded for as long as he did in the NFL, is that he was willing to do things completely differently from one week to the next. You read coaches or read stories about teams or players or coaches going up against Belichick and they'd come in expecting one game plan and he would be there the next week doing something completely different. Like not, okay, we're going to play a little less man and a little bit more zone, but like an entirely different schematic approach in a week. And teams would get completely cut off guard, caught off guard because Belichick was just willing to say, what's going to work in this scenario? What can we do that's going to get guys in a position to do things that can help us beat this opposing team? That, I think, is a good lesson that anybody can learn. Now, you might not be able to do it to the level that Bill Belichick could, but and, and few can, but the overall principle, I think, is a sound one. Being willing to change and do things differently when the things that you're trying aren't working is the difference, I think, between a successful coach and a guy that's going to be out of a job after the end of the season. Sometimes you just got to change and be willing to do things differently and getting to the point where you say, all right, time to make a change and doing it quickly, I think, is important. Final question here. Let's circle back to April 
and uh, talk about the NFL draft for a second. Eric Statz asks, has there ever been a good study on success of drafting multiple players at a single position in the same year, especially with high picks or consecutive picks? I'm thinking of uh, Luke Musgrave and Tucker Craft this year, obviously, but lots of other Packers drafts in recent years have had not so great success. Uh, Jair uh, Damaris Randall and Quentin Rollins, uh, Jair Alexander and um, Josh Jackson, just for example. It feels like there's typically a narrative in draft analysis and in camp that it's smart and provides good direct competition and multiple bites at positions of weakness. Anecdotally, I would agree that it's probably a good idea. And I think there is some research that backs this up. I forget the name of the paper and I've got it somewhere in the depths of my Google Drive somewhere. But there's an, a couple of economists that actually studied this sort of phenomenon or, or basically a few phenomena surrounding the NFL draft. And basically the broad takeaway from their paper was in terms of resource distribution or resource utilization, I guess that's a better word, most NFL GMs are not very good. Uh, teams do not have a good grasp on what it takes to pick a guy who is good instead of a guy who is bad. And their takeaway was that teams are basically about a, a coin flip in terms of picking the guy who's going to be good between two players. And they looked at that by, or they were able to determine that by looking at a player who was picked at a given position and then looking at the next guy who was picked at a given position and who turned out to be better. Generally speaking, it was about a 50-50 shot. Sometimes player A was better than player B, but just about as often player B, the second guy taken, was better than player A. So the overall thinking is that you want to make more draft picks and get more shots at getting more good guys. If you're going to only hit at most on about 50% of your picks, getting more shots at that 50% are is, is a good idea. Now what we've got here is a really applied version of that idea. You're going to take your draft picks and say we've got three picks in the top 100 or four picks in the top 100. We're going to spend two of those four or two of those three on the same position. And in theory, we're going to get at least one. Ideally, we're going to get two at a position where we really need to get better. That works really well in two of the three possible outcomes. Outcome one, you get one guy who's good. Outcome two, you get two guys that turn out to be good. That's even better. But then outcome three, you swing and miss twice. And then not only are you still bad at that position, you've had some significant opportunity costs there as well. So looking at recent Packers history, there have been a few times where they've tried something like this. Jair Alexander and Josh Jackson, probably the preeminent example uh, of things you know, giving you outcome one there. Jair, Jair Alexander has turned out to be really good. Josh Jackson turned out to not be so good. Back in 2018, on day three, the Packers tried this with wide receiver. Uh, Jamon Moore, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and Equinemius St. Brown. You got, let's say, one and a half out of three were useful, at least for their rookie contract. Uh, MVS was obviously useful in his own way. I think people were harder on him maybe than they should have been considering where he was picked in the NFL draft. But the Packers got pretty much everything they could out of him as a day three pick. Equinemius St. Brown was, was good enough when healthy, and of course, Jamon Moore, a pretty big miss. The Packers grouped uh, running backs in 2017. Jamal Williams, Aaron Jones, and Devontae Mays. Two out of three. Not too shabby there. And one of those three is a really, really good player. Demarius Randall and Quentin Rollins, big swing and a miss. 
I think, on both of them. But again, I would point out that the 2015 draft, generally speaking, was not very good. Go back and look at how bad that overall draft there was. 2013, not day, day one picks, but David Bakhtiari and J.C. Treader. 2013, both tackles. Uh, easy to forget that J.C. Treader was originally drafted as a tackle. Round four selections, but just 13 picks apart. The Packers double dip at tackle, get two good ones. Uh, in terms of high picks, dating back 20 years now, or nearly 20 years now, the Packers had two big swings at cornerback in 2004. Ahmad Carroll in round one and Joey Thomas in round three. Big swing, big miss both times. Uh, I'll never forget uh, Joey Thomas in particular after flaming out in Green Bay. His parting words to the Green Bay media was, you haven't heard the last of Joey Thomas. We had. It was the last anybody ever really heard from him. He had, I think, a brief stint with the Jets or Jaguars or something like that after he left Green Bay. It it was pretty much the last anybody had ever heard of Joey Thomas, unfortunately speaking. Um, Sorry about that, Joey Thomas, if you are listening to this podcast. Finally, in 1999, really the preeminent example here of this working well is the Randy Moss draft. Packers were terrified of Randy Moss, and why wouldn't you be? Uh, Antoine Edwards in the first round, Fred Vinson uh, in the second round, and Mike McKenzie in the third round. The Packers just needed anything they could get to slow Randy Moss down in the secondary. I don't know if they really slowed him down, but they got, let's say, one and a half useful players out of that draft. Antoine Edwards, when he was good, he was fairly useful, but there were a lot of times that he wasn't so good, too. Fred Vinson, the Packers turned into one half of the Amon Green trade. And then he tore his ACL with the Seahawks playing pickup basketball and never played in the NFL again. And then Mike McKenzie in the third round turned out to be a pretty good player. So anecdotally, at least, to Eric's question here, it does seem like something where you can have some success. If you've got a screaming need at a position, you really just need help, doubling up is a good way to stack the deck in one way. If, if the if the draft breaks your way and you can add two players at one position, it does seem like it can help you fix something. The problem is, when you miss, it can turn out really bad. And I think if you wanted to hang, if you wanted to make things monocausal here, really say what sunk the late end of the Mike McCarthy era, missing on Demarius Randall and missing on Quentin Rollins, pick one, pick two in the 2015 draft, that's as good an explanation as any. Just missing on picks one and two in a situation where you needed to kind of retool after... Or, or set yourself up to retool, looking ahead to see your secondary is going to be changing as guys got expensive. And look, we can talk about you know the whys and what fors or whether or not they should have or all those things about letting uh, Micah Hyde and uh, Casey Hayward walk. The fact is those deals were coming down the pike and something the Packers had to insulate themselves from that a little bit. Swinging on Randall and Rollins would have eased that even if they only could have kept one of the two guys if either Randall or Rollins really hit. The problem was neither of them did, and it left the Packers scrambling for more in their secondary. I mean, just look. If if Randall or Rollins turns out to be good, do the Packers draft Kevin King in 2017? Do they draft Josh Jones in 2017? Do they end up having to draft uh, Eric Stokes even in 2021, Jair Alexander and Josh Jackson? I mean, you can play out some permutations down the road, but it seems like you can draw a pretty direct line from 
Demarius Randall and Quentin Rollins not working out, Casey Hayward and Micah Hyde subsequently leaving town, and then Kevin King coming to town because Randall and Rollins didn't work out, the Packers struggling there in the secondary for a while. You miss, and you miss really big by spending two picks on a position that doesn't work out. It's going to hurt you for a long, long time. So again, to put a bow on it, it does seem like it can work. It also seems like it can burn you really bad when it doesn't work at all. Hopefully the Packers are in a situation with Musgrave and Kraft where it works out at least in one of the two uh, positive directions there. At least get one guy who's good between the two of them. In any case, we'll be right there with you to talk about it if and when it doesn't work out. And then maybe we can talk about how this conversation came up and we thought it was a good idea to do something like that at the time. In the meantime, that's all I've got for you on this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.